Hello and welcome to Dream Nation. I'm your host, Yulia. And uh, on this intro, I'm a little stuffy because it is November in New York, which means it is cold season. So I've got the sniffles. Speaking of colds, go to my website, dreamnation.io and go check out the merch because I've created some really awesome hats to keep you warm this winter. Order them for Christmas, for friends as a gift, order one for yourself, order five for yourself. Why not? I have them in lots of different colors. They're really fun. And um, the merch helps support the podcast because it costs a lot of money to produce it every month. I have to pay for the editing, for the hosting. There's a lot that goes into making a podcast. So get a hat. It really helps. I'm really excited to bring you this podcast with Jasmine Trebelsi of Brand X Culture, a consultancy for startups looking for help with their user experience in digital marketing. Jasmine started her career as a designer in magazine publishing and fashion advertising before moving to San Francisco. There, in San Francisco, she became a part of the tech scene that was creating the social media platforms of Twitter and Flickr. This was like back in uh, 2000. Already a Facebook user, her expertise for guiding brands with her social media profiles led her to becoming the voice of Fry Boots and Food.com, a division of the Food Network. Let's go back. I know Jasmine from college, where we first created an arts magazine called artsymag.com. That was our first startup in college that we did that was tech-related, and it was an art platform. And I ran into Jasmine after not seeing her for years probably on the street in New York very recently I haven't seen her in probably like six years and I was like oh my god we have to do this podcast because we have to tell the story of artsymag.com because we were a woman in tech in 1999 doing a startup and we were big not to brag but we were (laughs) so I love doing this podcast and I hope you enjoy listening to it and uh, share it with a friend as well have a great day and enjoy the show Hello, 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 Jasmine. So good to see you. <laughs> Hi, Yulia. I'm or s- Julia. Which one should I do now? That's a good question, right? It's all a blur now because on all my corporate forms, it's Julia. So people call me Julia, and then all my friends call me Yulia, and then all my friends from college and high school call me Julia. You know what? I'm like the artist formerly known as Prince. It, it just doesn't <laughs> matter anymore. <laughs> what would you prefer for today? Um, call me Yulia, but don't call me late for dinner. Okay. <laughs> Yulia. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see you too, Jazz. We go way back. And um, it's so good to run into you on the street the other day, really randomly. I remember I was walking out of Union Square Ventures. I was pitching them for my startup. I had um, an interesting pitch with them. And then I haven't seen you in like 10 years probably or like eight years. And I ran into you on the street. And I was like, what are the chances that I'm pitching a startup? And it's like 1999 all over again. (laughs) I walk out of this office a little ejected, um, dejected. And who do I see sitting on a bench right there? Jasmine Trevelsi. Yeah, no, it was great. Um, we did a startup back in 1999 where we created an art magazine for women artists called Artsy. And it was a great experience just to like build something with your own sweat and have it come to life. And it was amazing. We originally started to do a print magazine and then it was digital and just kind of grew from there. Well, I want to thank you for keeping artsymag.com still going so you can still check out artsymag.com because you've been paying for the domain for like probably the last 17 years. I've been paying for it. And the funny thing is, is one of my friends knows the artsy people who do the art startup and they were like, do you have artsy.com? And I was like, no, I have artsymag.com. And he's like, oh, okay. 
he wanted to, <laughs> he wanted to know if I had artsy because he wanted to buy it. <laughs> well, let's start a while back about how we both got into tech. So you and I were you met Samhurst together. I forget you were majoring in art. What was your major? Yeah, I did. Um, a double major. I did psychology, and then I also did photo, art, and media, uh, feminist media, because we were part of this program called BDIC, where you can make your own major, which was really great. That's right. I did BDIC, too. I forget. You are a BDIC. So UMass Amherst has a really great program. It's called Bachelor's Degree with Individual Concentration, and we both did it, and it lets you create your own major, taking uh, courses at the five colleges, neighboring by Amherst, Smith, uh, Hampshire, um, I'm at Holyoke, UMass, and Hampshire. Maybe I said Hampshire twice. Well, <laughs> it's a really great program, and they let us pretty much build our own curriculum. I did um, socially aware advertising way before social media was happening and way before social impact was a thing. I was telling ad agencies to start um, participating in their communities and create social impact to really change their advertising model. And uh, old advertising men and advertising agencies like uh, Phil Deustenberry from BBDO kept on asking me if I can write a commercial. They were like, can you write a jingle? <laughs> I was like, I can write a jingle, but look, I have a thesis about how we can actually change advertising to create a larger impact and create more revenue. So that year, I remember you were working at Fitness. Yes, Fitness Magazine in the city. You did an internship at Fitness, and through the program, I was able to do an amazing internship at Paper Magazine and get to know a lot of people. And we both came back to college wanting to do something bigger for our junior year. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were both involved in the art world. And then you proposed we started doing artsy, and you wrote a bunch of grants. And we got like $5,000, I think. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which seems like a lot of money when you're a college kid. <laughs> yeah, and we got five grand to publish a magazine. And uh, Jasmine worked really, really hard to get the website up. We, you were the first woman I knew who was designing web. So yeah, I actually am a daughter of a programmer. My father is a developer. And then my partner, who's my husband now, is also a developer. And through um, BDIC, I was able to take computer programming classes. So I was in taking HTML and JavaScript as well as art classes. So I was able to put my first website together um, pretty easily and then have someone check the code for me. Um, so that was great. <laughs> well, you've influenced me because I was doing just straight up design and advertising at the time, but I started taking HTML5 classes and I started getting into Flash. Remember Flash? Oh my God, Flash, oh my God, yes. Flash. <laughs> so I started coding because of you and I started to really get into technology. So you were my first foray into technology. You know, you were an inspiration. Oh. Awesome. <laughs> I know, right? So we started doing that together at the same time, and it really gave us hands-on experience launching a startup. And actually, I want to mention that your husband is a pretty badass guy. He's not just like a coder. He's like a CTO of like Etsy before and all these amazing things. Yeah. Um, so I moved to San Francisco partly because um, my partner started working for this company called Flickr. And at the time, they were the top photo sharing site um, on the web, and he worked there with a very talented group of people, um, and I got to meet a lot of people who are really dedicated to making the, the world a better place, which is now a cliche, um, but we're really impassioned about keeping the web affordable and open and sharing with people across cultures, and so Flickr was really great. I also um, knew some of the first developers of Twitter, um, so I just kind of saw all this evolve within my social circle and it really gave me a openness 
to not be afraid of technology, which a lot of my print comrades were afraid. <laughs> yeah, I remember we were doing the magazine and people are like, oh, you have a website too. And we're like, yeah, we're a magazine with a website. And our website at the time was getting 60,000 hits per month, individual hits. Yes, that's And that correct. was 1999 and that was before social media. So we did that through word of mouth, through throwing parties and through emails. And emails are still a huge thing for my company, Dream Nation. I still send a lot of emails and... Um, Emails are still a really great way for people to discover things and share them with friends. Yeah, the other thing that we did is we talked to a lot of editors that were part of the art press. So we were featured on Art Forum, and it was so controversial that we were doing a magazine. We got 27 pages of comments. And I remember um, we were like, what are we going to do? Um, but now it's it's if you get any press, it's good news. So I, back then we were really freaking out, but in retrospect, it was a really great thing because obviously there was a need for it. Um, yeah, we represented 365, I think, uh, women artists from all over the world. So Artsy was focused on women artists and writers. And we interviewed everybody from Yoko Ono. We got a private interview with her. We had an interview with Nancy Spiro. We had an interview with Judy Chicago. We had an interview with the Guerrilla Girls. And um, we were a feminist art magazine promoting women because women were always considered artsy. They were never considered masters. And that was your brilliant idea. Thank you. And um, and it was just so much fun. We actually made a dent in the art world. We, we got a lot of buzz going. We got a lot of street cred. Um, but we couldn't figure out a way how to monetize it. And it was 2000. And everything was really great. The economy was super. The art world was booming. And we were trying to figure out how <laughs> how we would make money off our magazine. We were a little hesitant to put ads in the magazine. We were trying to work on the second issue. We had a first issue out. It was great. Second issue, we were like, how do we charge people for advertising? It feels really kind of dirty to charge <laughs> Right. We didn't want people. to taint it. We're like, this is pure. You know, when it's your baby in a passion project, you don't really want to um, dilute the brand by yeah. putting ads. <laughs> we were so silly. We were like, no, I don't know how we're going to make money. Everybody loves it. We don't know how to monetize it. And then I remember there was a point where we actually were considering having banner ads on our website. And we're like, oh, that's so tacky. We can't do banner ads. <laughs> I remember we were having this huge conversation being like, do we do banner ads or not? And um, we had a lot of ad. Um, we should have started conversations with ad agencies and brands, which we didn't do looking back on everything. The one thing that we probably should have done is gone directly straight to brands and ad agencies. But we we're so focused on the content. We were so focused on the magazine. We we're so focused in the art world. We didn't have a 30,000 square foot view on it. We were just focused on really creating other like great stuff. And we didn't have an account team. You right. know, We didn't have like any of the finance people helping us. We were really purely editorial focused. I also think um, when you look at some of the big brands that have grown uh, the internet, like Etsy and Squarespace, um, if we had allowed artists to build their own page from their profile, that would have been an early foothold into monetizing. Um, but we weren't thinking of that back then. Um, but it's something to think about. It really was a great lesson to learn how you kind of have to go where the noise is. Like you might have this vision for your product and it's breathing on its own. And when it goes on its own direction, you have to kind of follow with it and be able to move quickly and pivot. 
that's true. And I realized as I record in New York, there are a lot of sirens all the time. So I'm very aware of sirens as I record in New York City. And they actually are working to highlight like very important messages. Whenever a person says something that's really, really important, there's usually a siren going off, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> Um, okay, so let me say that again. Um, basically, what I was saying is that a lot of websites that have been popular have been people building their own accounts. So if you think of Etsy or Flickr or a lot of these other social media platforms, they give you the software and you create your own brand. And I think with Etsy, I mean with uh, Artsy, if we allowed a lot of these artists we profile to create their own website, that could have been a potential monetary um benefit for our brand i think in retrospect that's a really great insight um what i find really interesting is that 2001 happened and the art world came to a halt in new york nobody was thinking about art everybody was just so traumatized yeah and the, and the market stopped and there were no jobs so we kind of had to put artsy on hold Definitely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of our favorite magazines were folding, actually, um, in 2001. And, you know, at the repercussions of that, Domino closed, Jane closed. Um, and it was really sad because you become in love with these magazines and it's hard to say goodbye. It is. Did you hear that Teen Vogue just downsized? They cut their staff? No, it was really small. Um to begin with, they they made it smaller, uh, the print to make it cheaper. But yeah, publishing is kind of in a tight spot. Um, I think I'll always have a soft spot for it. Um, but people are just online all the time. Actually, I've had an interesting conversation about this modes of discovery with one of my clients. And before, a lot more modes of discovery were out there. But now a lot of people are using Google for searching. A lot of people are using Pinterest for inspiration. There are a lot of them are following influencers. So everyone's kind of buying the same few brands that are popular. And instead of being more individual, it seems like, you know, you're just kind of becoming more of this like hipster social media influence brand. You're just kind of a little bit more like sheep. I think we're really lucky to be in New York City because you can still find that local maker. Um, I walked down Broadway yesterday and finally found a really cool shop, but I passed a lot of brands um, before I found it. It's really hard to find individual cool stuff. I, and even though I live in Williamsburg, you know, that's like epicenter of Bushwick even, all the big brands are slowly coming in. We just got a Muji store. We just got you know, obviously Starbucks, all these big brands. And um, it's really hard for artists to survive. Like I was in Detroit and I'm in love with Detroit because I think there's still that funky culture of a, mm. that, like independence without the corporate control. So I think it's getting harder and harder for creatives to keep creative because everything is so expensive. Like I parked at Whole Foods today to work out. You know, I was like pulling out and it was like $50 for an hour and a half of parking, you know, if I didn't get validated. And I'm like, yeah. this is ridiculous. This is what, like, Brooklyn has become. Like, I was, like, staring at that price tag. And I was like, why do I live in the city still? Like, I just, like, I can just probably afford my own gym in my own house if I move out somewhere. <laughs> and I can probably afford a personal <laughs> trainer for that money. Like, it's insane. It's insane what I put up with, you know, like. 
and how do I even live in a fancy building and like our stove has been broken for like three months and our landlord hasn't really fixed it yet. <laughs> oh my. Yeah, that's that's the thing about New York. Uh, I grew up as a New Yorker, so I've been in New York 27 years total and it's definitely a love-hate relationship. You start to think, oh, let me move somewhere where there's square footage and green trees and you can breathe a little bit. But whenever I go away, I get bored after the fourth day and I think New York is one of those, you know, I don't want to say it's a disease. <laughs> it's kind of like an affliction. <laughs> like, how about an abusive relationship? <laughs> possibly, yeah. You just, there's those like moments where you're just like, oh, I love this city. And when you go somewhere else and you don't have those wonderful moments, you're like, why am I here? I need to go back home. <laughs> well, I'm going to bring this back around back to Artsy. So 2001 happened to me. He lost a lot of funding. Nothing was happening, so we kind of um, try to go back to grad school, and we try to find jobs, and I entered advertising, and I think you were doing a lot of design at the time. Yeah, I was doing design and um, websites, and I started teaching at Northeastern. I was teaching portfolio design to graduate students in the architecture department. So, so we both did that for a while, and then I remember 2008, 2007, I started seeing the name Artsy everywhere online, yeah. and I was like, Artsy, Artsy, and then I looked at it, and it was this new art magazine that was similar to us, without the feminist angle, because we try to sell art online as well, but it clearly did not work for us, because nobody wanted to buy $10,000 paintings online from us. <laughs> no, we had pretty good success doing pop-up galleries, though. We, I remember when we sold our first painting, and I think Julia delivered it. Um, this is a collector who had so much art all over his apartment. I'm not sure where he found room to hang it. <laughs> I have a story for that. Ready? It's a yeah. great story. So we had one of the head guys from Rockstar Games yeah. come in to our art gallery while Adriana Lima was running around somewhere avoiding cameras <laughs> at our party. He bought a humongous painting, and... As he was walking out to put it in his car, which was like a Porsche, I don't know how he could have put it in there because he was clearly driving a sports car. The irony is his car got stolen right outside of the Almond building that night. So as Britta and, as Britta and I are walking out to figure out how to get this painting into his car, he goes, oh my God, oh my God, my car has been stolen. And I'm looking at him going, the head guy of Rockstar Games just had his car stolen. Like you can't wow. write this. So he goes, oh, my gosh, my car is stolen. And we go, oh, my gosh, okay, you deal with it, and we'll deliver the painting to your house. So her and I literally got into a car and the subway the next day and, like, transported this humongous painting to his <laughs> house and delivered it. That is the service that you get, by the way, from anything that I'm involved in. I will hand deliver stuff to you. <laughs> All time of day and night. <laughs> All time of day and night. So I remember that was a really great story. And... Um, so yeah, we did have some sales, but online it was a little slow. We could not move product. Like $25 things I think were sold, but like anything above 150 bucks, there was just no market for it. So when Artsy came out, I was really surprised that people were shopping things online. But then I was thinking that maybe it's because it's a different audience. I know that Rupert Mur uh, Murdoch's ex-wife, Wendy, was an investor and they had like millions of money put into them. So possibly the people who were putting in millions of money were using the site to purchase high-end art, which went against all the research that we did initially, which said that people 
want to see art in person. They do not want to buy high-end art online. So that stood out to me. And it still does as that question of, well, what were we doing wrong? How come we didn't get that funding? How come we didn't have that audience? What made Artsy from like UPenn, whatever they were, the two guys that clearly researched the idea on the internet, they saw that we existed. <laughs> they still took That's interesting. Name. I actually have never, um, I've been in their office. Actually, there is a very popular Foursquare tip mm-hmm. um, of mine based on their office. They have a great view. Um, but I have never talked to the founders. That would be interesting to see if they didn't know us. They had to. You have two smart guys going to college who researched their competition. And technically, we were competition. We have the same name. And, you know, yeah. they just kind of started it knowing that we existed, knowing that we did something similar. And uh, it didn't stop them. I think the good thing about being well-funded is you can afford to make mistakes. Um, that's one of the things that I've noticed watching a lot of startups and they burn through a lot of money um, is that it's okay. As long as you find your audience and you find a voice and people want your product, investors are happy with that because you're getting attention and then you get to monetize later. I mean, it can be a lot of pressure, but um, I think Artsy, they had the advantage of having money and being able to sponsor different art basels and different um, art fairs at a time where there weren't a lot of brands doing that. That is true. So my question to you, I usually actually open up every podcast with this question, but I just completely blazed through it today because today was just the way it is. And my question to you is, um, what was your dream growing up as a kid? Oh, my. I was trying to remember. Actually, I think probably um, growing up, I used to watch um, the fashion show channel. It was mostly for trade. It wasn't that glamorous. You would just see models go down the runway and I used to watch that for hours while my dad was coding because he would be on these crazy like 72 hour deadlines and be working all weekend and I'm just like that's cool I'll just watch the fashion show channel and I actually like created a brand in high school and was trying to do like a startup label but I ended up going to college and not majoring in fashion design I think partly because my father thought it was um, too not conventional enough. And so that's how I ended up being a double major, doing psychology as well as fashion and art. Let me tell you, trying to be a double major and graduate in four years is very hard. (laughs) Well, that's funny because I was interested in fashion too, and I wanted to go to FIT, and everybody in my family talked me out of it. So I I think think that we we have that in common, and I totally forgot about that too. But I love fashion because it goes back to individuality. Fashion is the only way you can to express your individuality, whether you're working in a boring office and you wear crazy socks, (laughs) or you have a mohawk, or um, the way you dress says so much, or the way you choose not to dress. It's so interesting. Absolutely. And I think also just growing up in New York really influenced me. My dad was actually had great style. He had these lovely pieces from France, um, like brown leather trench coats and like gorgeous mohair turtleneck. So I grew up with that sense of style. My mom was more bohemian. She would have these like crazy hippie patterned skirts and thought black was horrible and was like, well, you need color, color. 
Um, so, you know, that all kind of influenced me. Yeah, I just think that fashion is part of my DNA. And when I've lived in other cities, I really miss that. So what is your dream now as an adult? My dream now as an adult is to try to prioritize my time on things that give me joy and to find a way to grow my business so that I can work with clients um, where I believe in their product, but also have an impact. And I would say the other thing is, is just to have that work-life balance. I am a daughter, she's three, and since she's young, I like to make sure that I have some time to be with her um, before she goes to sleep. So right now I'm doing freelance and it allows me to kind of work during the time when she's in preschool, um, but also be there, you know, to make the dinosaur cookies for birthday. <laughs> I bet you make the most amazing dinosaur cookies. Well, I put a lot of color sugar on top to make it bright and colorful. The kids like gobbled it up in less than a minute. <laughs> it's like a mandala in a weird way, you know, like when the Buddhists spend like days creating something out of like sand, colorful sand, and then it's gone in minutes. Yeah, you know, we didn't really talk about parenthood, but I will say that when you're creative, I still remember Judy Chicago's interview, and she said, if you want to be an artist, don't ever become a mother. And I remember being really scared about trying to do both. And I think what's interesting is that you learn about yourself when you have a kid. And I find that I'm more accepting of my qualities than what I was before. And so I think it's been a positive and I know I'll get my time back and be able to create more. It's been an interesting ride. Well, you're investing in a little version of you in a weird way. It's a little version that passes on the torch. You know, it might not be the ideal vision of what they're going to pass the torch as. I mean, having a kid is pretty much the greatest work of art you can actually pretty much do. You know, you really download your consciousness into this thing and then you let it go free. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting. People have different philosophies. Um, one friend of ours is like, yeah, I do A-B testing on my kid and <laughs> see what the results are. And I'm like, whoa, okay, I'm just like making it through the day. I will say that she already has our sense of style. She's the most fashionable kid in the neighborhood and people regularly like run up to us to see what she's wearing. Um, so that's pretty interesting. I definitely downloaded my sense of, of style to her and she's totally has her own flair. She's like, more pattern, the better. <laughs> That's so cute. I think we have a few minutes to talk about, you know, UX and design. What is the number one thing you would actually advise startups to do? Yeah. So when you're a startup, you don't have a lot of money. It's all about bootstrapping it, doing it yourself. Um, but I think that you kind of have blinders on. You've been with this baby day and night, working seven days a week, and you sometimes need outside help. Someone who can kind of give you a fresh perspective, can talk to your clients where your clients will be more honest with me because they don't want to offend you. I'm also pretty easygoing. Like I can talk to you know anyone from someone on the street to <laughs> someone who's the CEO of a major company. I have that, I guess, talent from my mom. And um, it's really been great to help startups make these realizations like maybe you're marketing to the wrong audience. I've had that happen. Maybe your product is doing the wrong thing. And so I've helped companies um, pivot to build something that was what the market actually wanted. And I think startups, it's hard to make that investment, but I found that even within a month, I'm able to show them 
the value of hiring me. And where can they find you online? Actually, I am redesigning my website. It's brandxculture. It's a plus sign on side, um, dot com. But if you want to find me online, my personal handle is curlyjazz, C-U-R-L-Y-J-A-Z-Z. And just shoot me an email or message me and we get the ball started. Jasmine is great. You should check her out. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. And I know you're really, really busy. And I appreciate you making the time. And I have a feeling we're going to do probably a follow-up podcast sometime in the future because there's a lot of stuff to talk about. So, Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. So, thank you so much for being on the show and have a great day. Thank you, Julie. Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast. It's Dream Nation Love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more. And together, we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation Love, share it with your friends, have a great day, and go out and make the world a better place.